Great to see you on Easter Sunday. I uh, just want to welcome, if you're a regular here at Oasis, part of our community, good morning. Especially want to welcome our guests today. And I just want to say that if uh, you enjoyed the message today, my name is Phil. And if you don't, my name is Robbie Waddell. <laughs> uh, actually, I'm just really glad to see you today. Um, this morning, I have some good news to share with you. And when I say good news, I literally mean good news. A book just came out about a year and a half ago by a terrific thinker in the Christian faith. His name is N.T. Wright. And this is kind of the thesis for his book. He says, we need to ask afresh, what is the good news Jesus himself announced and told his followers to announce as well? You know, it turns out that a lot of people are very unclear about this. A lot of people think that Jesus came just to give good advice, like be kinder, You know, be more loving, be nicer. But of course, nobody gets crucified for saying that kind of stuff. And a lot of people who have attended church, maybe for years, are not really, really aware of Jesus' central message. And that's what I want to talk about just for a moment here before we celebrate the resurrection. I want to give you kind of an executive summary of Jesus' core message, so succinct that you'll actually be able to tweet it, if you tweet. If you never come back to church again, you're going to be way ahead of people who go to church every single week of their life. In fact, you may be at a cocktail party someday and somebody strikes up a conversation and says, Hey, what was the real message of Jesus? That would be kind of weird to happen at a cocktail party, but it could. And you're going to be able to pull out your phone and say, I know that one. It's right here. The Gospel of Mark kind of summarizes it. Mark writes, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Mark points out twice that Jesus' core message is good news. In other words, it's not good advice. Advice is trying to get people to do something. Good news is an announcement that something significant has happened. Friends, Jesus' core message is not to teach people how to live. It is not to give it good advice. It is to proclaim a particular good news. You see it over and over in the Gospels. Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. That's in the Gospel of Luke. One time, people tried to get Jesus to kind of settle down in their town. And this is how Jesus described it to them. He said, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because... That is why I was sent. Then Jesus gave a message to his disciples one time. He said when Jesus had called the twelve together, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And at the very end of his time on earth, even after Easter, we're told once more he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Here it is. The good news, the gospel is another word for it, is that the kingdom of God has arrived. It is now available to ordinary human beings like you and me. I want to tell you why this is so important for you to understand on this Easter Sunday. A lot of pastors, a lot of churches, maybe even whole denominations, a lot of people have replaced that core message of Jesus with another gospel that might be called the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven when you die. Now, they don't put it in those words exactly, but it's really about how to make sure you get into heaven when you die. I'm going to give you kind of modern day parallel. When I uh, had a trip with my family about two months ago, 
we were staying at a resort hotel up in uh, the northeast. And in that hotel, they had a nightclub section in the hotel in the resort. And one night as we were going to eat and we were coming back to our room, we had to pass by that nightclub. And man, it was hopping. (laughs) Dozens and dozens of people were in line standing in these roped off lines. And I mean, they were dressed to the nines, waiting, waiting to get into this club. And I thought that's really interesting. But what was even more interesting is every few minutes, this group of security personnel would come out of the club. They would look at the people in the line, and they would invite certain people from the line into the club. But the weird thing was, is they didn't always pick the people up front. Some people who had been waiting in the back, who had only been waiting a few minutes, actually got to bypass the people up front. And I stood there for a moment trying to figure out how in the world could the people in the front be bypassed. I finally determined the shorter your skirts were, the more chance you had getting in the nightclub. But a lot of people, a lot of people have this idea of the gospel. It's like in heaven there's this great party in the sky somewhere. And they're checking everybody at the door. And the gospel is the announcement of the minimal entrance requirements that will get you in that door. What do I have to believe and what do I have to do? Here's what I want you to know is Jesus never, ever, ever said, here are the minimal entrance requirements to get into heaven. What he did say over and over is the kingdom of God has arrived. Now, I know we get fuzzy about this because kingdom is not a word that we use a lot. I mean, unless you read J.R.R. Tolkien or you watch Game of Thrones, which I'm sure none of you do, you don't know much about kingdoms. But everybody has a kingdom in a biblical sense. Your kingdom is your sphere of life where what you say goes. We learn this from very early age. The two favorite words of a two-year-old. Here they are. Ready? No and mine. Right. They learn real quick. I have a little kingdom. When they start growing up and they're sitting in the back seat, what do they do? They tell each other, here's a line down the center of this seat. You stay on your side. I'll stay on my side. What are they doing? They're establishing their little kingdom. And if you put all these little kingdoms together, it's very interesting. They intersect and they merge and they form kingdoms and families and neighborhoods and cities and companies like Google and Facebook. If you put them all together, if you want the Bible's language for it, if you put them all together, we call it the kingdom of this earth. Now let's do a study in contrast for a moment. On one side, Jesus says there's this kingdom called and the domain called the kingdom of God. That is the sphere where everything happens the way God wants it to be. The New New Testament writers would describe this. They would say stuff like, the kingdom of God is not a matter of legalistic rules, like what do you eat or what do you drink or what do you wear, but it's of wholeness and peace and joy and love. They said that's the kingdom of God. But over here, there's what's called the kingdom of this earth. And I want to ask you this morning on Easter Sunday, how are things going these days? Terrorism, violence, pilots downing planes, a bombing in Belgium, poverty, starving children, broken hearts, broken lives. And Jesus had this glorious plan. He says, I'm going to bring up there down here. Some people have it all wrong. They think of kind of like a prayer from Star Trek. Remember when people got in trouble, who would they always call? 
Remember? Beam me up, Scotty. They think that's Jesus' message. They just can't wait to get down out of here to go up there. Jesus actually had a prayer. He talked about this. He called it the Lord's Prayer, or we call it that. Even a lot of people who say that prayer week after week after week really don't even think about it. Back in the 1980s, some of you remember this, the Chicago Bears, a football team, had this celebrated, celebrated Super Bowl team. Amazing team. And their head coach, Mike Ditka, asked one of the players one time in the locker room, a guy named uh, Refrigerator Perry. Remember him? The fridge? He asked the fridge to pray the Lord's Prayer to lead the team. And Jim McMahon, who was like their star quarterback, a real quirky guy, he leans over to the team chaplain. He says, hey, preacher. He goes, I'm going to bet you $50 that the fridge doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. And it seemed kind of like an odd bet to make over the Lord's Prayer. But the preacher said, the chaplain said, okay, I'll take the bet. So they all bowed their heads. And then the fridge began to pray. Now I lay me down to sleep. And Jim McMahon shook his head took out the $50 and handed it to the chaplain and said, man, I was sure he didn't know the Lord's Prayer. (laughs) Here's the prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom, what? Come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said, here's my plan. I'm going to invade this messed up kingdom of darkness, we call the kingdom of earth, with this eternally loving kingdom called the kingdom of God. Up there is now coming down here. And here's the crux of what I want you to understand on Easter Sunday about the good news of living in a different kingdom. From a Christian perspective, this ability to live in the kingdom of God does not ultimately rest on your competence or your level of giftedness or your determination or your resolve or your own power. It does not ultimately rest on you at all. You see, it's so interesting. Few people really grasp today what the resurrection, what this morning is all about. I want to make this so clear, as clear as I can. The good news that Jesus came to bring, that you can live in the kingdom of God, is even better because of the resurrection. The reality of the resurrection, that Jesus is alive, actually gives every follower of Jesus a different perspective on life. Even the world around them. It's the resurrection that provides the ultimate source of power when you're trying to deal with the stuff that you will deal with tomorrow morning and Tuesday and Wednesday. I have never yet met one person who can handle everything that life throws at them. We need power. This is why Paul talked about this in Romans. He says, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as He raised Christ from the dead, He will give life to your mortal body by this same Spirit living within you. This is why over in Ephesians, he said, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe Him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated Him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. So here, just in these last moments, I want to get clarity on what the resurrection really means today. As you seek to really live in the kingdom of God, a different place than what we live in in this world. That is the entrance requirements to heaven, friends. 
The same power that raised Jesus from the grave is available now to us. And one of the things is this. The hope of the resurrection gives you power to overcome failure in your life. Now I have a beautiful view from this stage. All of you in this room look like you're in pretty good shape. But the truth is, I know there's got to be some exceptions. We all know about this. In fact, when we find it out about each other, it's actually a little bit relieving. But some of you in this room might be dealing with failure of some kind, and you feel like you're the only one this Sunday. So at this point, we're going to do a little mass confession. I'm going to run through a few categories, and you can raise your hands when I get to the end, only if it's appropriate to you. If you have ever failed a test in your life, got cut from a team or an audition, did not get a job you went after or a promotion you were hoping to get. If you've ever acted inappropriately impatient with a three-year-old, slept during a sermon when you wish you would have stayed awake, stayed awake during a sermon when you wish you would have slept. <laughs> have you ever said the wrong thing, ate the wrong, with the wrong fork, wore synthetic fibers, or experienced moral, athletic, academic, social, relational, financial, or vocational failure of any kind? If you would just raise your hand for just a moment. Now, how many people have never failed, but the person next to you looks pretty squirrely? <laughs> okay, anybody? Oh, there's one. Okay, good. If you live in the kingdom of this earth, you will experience failure. And here's the really tough news. If you experience failure, you're probably going to also experience shame. You see, shame is the prison that failure produces. When you live with shame and failure, here's what happens in life. You stop taking risks anymore. Your self-worth erodes. Your hopes and dreams, they just start to fade away. You doubt yourself constantly. And you live, you live with an underlying current of fear in your life. In the drama this morning, you heard from Peter. Peter could have been the poster boy for failure. He talked about stepping out on the water to come to Jesus. And in this story, Jesus comes to them and says what he always says to people. He says, listen, you know who I am. You know you can trust me. Just, just you know, don't be afraid. And Peter says, what do you want me to do? And Jesus says, walk on the water, Peter. Get out of the boat. So Peter walks to the side. And you can only imagine this moment. He's always shooting off his mouth. And the other disciples have to be wondering, is this guy really going to do this? And then he steps over the side of the boat. Think about this. In that moment, it's just Peter and Jesus. And a real ordinary human being is walking toward him. And then something happens. Peter stops looking at Jesus and... He notices the wind and it's really strong. He notices the waves are really big. He notices the water is really cold. And his faith was really weak. Now here's the question. Did Peter fail? I say yes. He took his eyes off of where they should have been and he sank. But I want to tell you something I really believe. I believe that there were 11 bigger failures sitting back in the boat who failed quietly. See, their failure was private and safe, unnoticed, uncriticized. And some of you are experiencing that moment right now in your life. Some of you have, and some of you will. But I want you to know this morning that only Peter, only Peter knew two things. First of all, Peter knew the glory of walking on water. And friends, once you walk on water, I have a feeling that you take that one to your grave. 
Another thing that Peter knew, that only Peter knew, was the glory of what it is to be lifted up by Jesus in a moment of desperate need. It is a moment that the others could not tell about. What's so amazing is this wouldn't be the last time Peter failed. He cut off a soldier's ear in a rash of anger. He denies Jesus three times. And if some of you are here in this morning service and you've gone through a gut-wrenching failure, maybe it's painful, maybe it's embarrassing. I have no idea what it is. Maybe it's something you need to learn. Maybe it was nothing. It was not your fault at all. What I want you to know and hear clearly is that your story, your story, your life story does not end on this side of the resurrection. Peter's life didn't end at the cross on Friday. Peter's life began anew on Sunday morning. And the same power that raised Jesus from the dead raised Peter out of a pot of shame and failure. Here's another thing. The hope of the resurrection gives you power to overcome double-mindedness. That's a big word. But I'm going to tell you it's a really important word, especially if you're going to lunch after today at a restaurant. Anybody here ever go to a restaurant with an indecisive person? Oh, my goodness. Super salad. Thousand Island or vinaigrette. Regular or decaf. Cash or credit. It's torture going to a restaurant with an indecisive person. Some of you have been there and some of you will be there in just a few moments. How many of you, if you're just real honest, would say that you've ever wrestled with indecision in your life? And if you're wrestling with the question, then yes, you already know the answer. Okay. <laughs> See, here's the deal about double-mindedness. Without power, I live at the mercy of my circumstances. My own self-esteem and my own worth, they're continually up for grabs. I lack this like solid inner core of my identity and who I am. This is why the author of the book of James in the New Testament, he calls this lack of confident trust in God double-mindedness. And the metaphor that he uses is that somebody who lacks the confidence in God, the trust in God, is like a wave of deceit, blown forward one minute and blown backward the next. They're constantly at the mercy of the way the wind is blowing. And James says, let me just be honest, they're unstable in all they do. I thought about this guy, Pilate. What a character. The man ultimately orders Jesus to be crucified. And if you say anything about Pilate, you might as well just be honest. He played both sides of the fence pretty good. He tried to please everybody. But in the end, he was more concerned than how he was viewed than who he really was at the core of his being. See, after a while, double-minded people stop worrying about the truth and they just start focusing on damage control. I love the way author Henry Nguyen put it. He said it like this. He said, at issue here is the question, to whom do I belong? To God or to the world? Which kingdom am I going to live in? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of this earth? Many of my daily preoccupations suggest I belong more to the world than to God because a little criticism makes me angry. A little rejection makes me depressed. The wind blows that way and then it blows this way. A little praise raises my spirits. A little success excites me. Often I am like a small boat on the ocean at the mercy of its waves. It really depends on how the wind's blowing that day. 
A writer in the 19th century put it like this. They said, purity of heart is to will one thing, no double-mindedness, no divided loyalties. Here it is again, the message of Jesus. One thing. Jesus talking to a group of people one day, and they're all upset. They're all in a tizzy. They're all excited because they're worrying about what they're going to have to drink and what they're going to have to eat, what they're going to get to wear. How do they look? Do they have enough security? And Jesus looks at them and says, you guys are so double-minded. He said the secret to purity of heart is one thing. Do you remember what he said? Seek first the... Wow, there it is again. The possibility of living now under the actual presence of God, under the actual rule of God, that's what Jesus came to bring. And purity of heart is one thing. It is seek first the kingdom. Now here's the good news about this, because I don't want this to get too heavy on on, uh, Easter Sunday. When you get off the fence in your life and you finally decide something, friends, you're going to experience tremendous relief in your life. One of the temptations that we often fall to is the temptation to believe that you cannot fully follow Jesus in your life because there are other things that you have to do instead. Let me explain. What the world, the kingdom of this earth, tries to get us to believe is is that we've got to do other things. We always have other things we have to do. But the truth is, you don't have to do anything that will keep you from following Jesus. The truth is, this morning, you're unbelievably free. Now, it sounds kind of odd, but one of the things that we need to learn is how to say something just really easy. Four letters that are very easy to say. It's a simple phrase. We're going to practice it here for a moment. It's the phrase, I don't have to. Let's just all say it together. Ready? I don't have to. Tomorrow morning, you're going to see ads on TV tomorrow night. It's going to tell you you've got to buy something in order to be happy. But tomorrow, because you heard this message, you're going to say with great passion, I don't have to. Sometime between now and next week, you're going to get in a rush. You're going to get in a hurry. In fact, some of you are going to get in a frenzied hurry. You're going to be running to and fro, not even knowing which way is up. But then you're going to stop and you're going to say with great firmness, I don't have to. When you go to work tomorrow, listen, the first thing that the boss asks you to do, I don't care what it is, you can just say to him. <laughs> may not work, Dan, would it? It's very interesting. There's virtually nothing that you have to do. So your circumstances are no hindrance to following Jesus. And the question is, and this is the question Jesus asked, have you made the single decision in your whole life? Have you ever come face to face with what is really driving you? Have you ever decided that the single goal of your life is to live as if Jesus were in your place? That is what the resurrection gives you power to do, friends. It also gives you power to do something else. It's a little heavy. The power of the resurrection gives you the ability to overcome grief. You know, this time last year, I thought I knew what the pain of grief was. I've been a pastor for 30 years. I've been with families the very moment when their loved ones were dying. 
I've stood at the graveside during dozens and dozens of funerals trying to offer words of comfort to people in moments of loss. But I want to tell you the truth. This is the truth. Until the darkness of grief visits you personally, you have no idea what kind of pain people are walking around with. Somebody asked me a few weeks ago, they said, Phil, what is it like? I don't really know how to describe it. But the best way I can explain it is maybe you're in this very deep hole, very narrow. And you look up and you can see light. And you're told that if you can just get up out of this hole, that there will be a whole world out there waiting for you. And you start to climb out of that hole and then you realize you have no arms. You have no legs. But then you still try to climb. And it's awkward. And it's frustrating. But you still try. I wonder if that's how Mary felt. When her baby boy died. You see, more than a potential Messiah, more than this Jewish rabbi, more than a radical revolutionary. You see, here's the deal. He belonged to her. She rocked him to sleep. She nursed him. She saw him play with other children. She saw him make the very first thing he ever made as a carpenter. She had to feel what some of you in this room feel, and that is emptiness and this perpetual sadness that that gummit, it just won't go away. Some of you have lost a friend, a loved one, a job, a dream. Some of you know what it is to walk with a limp every day of your life. But I'm going to tell you something this morning. And it's not going to be some quick fix, magical moment thing that pastors spray fairy dust over people and act like it's going to be okay. What I want you to know is this. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that defeated death once and for all. It is the same power that will give you the strength, just enough strength to get up and get through today. It's the same power. Listen, maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. Maybe not the day after that. But one day, every loss is going to be reclaimed. Every pain is going to be redeemed. Every tear is going to be wiped up. I want to say this clearly. I do not know the depth of your pain, but I know the depth of my God's love. When Jesus said it is finished, he drove a nail in the coffin of death. And if you hear nothing else I say, I say to you this morning, who are hurting and grieving and have suffered loss, God is not in the crucifixion business. God is in the resurrection business. Here's something else. The power and the hope of the resurrection gives you power to overcome unbelief. You know, the centurion soldier is such an interesting character in this story. Maybe one of the most intriguing because he stood at the foot of the cross 
And he's trying to reconcile in his mind who is this guy in his head versus what his heart is telling him. Now here's what you need to know. Roman soldiers, the centurions, were not known for self-heartedness. Their main job requirement, here's their main job requirement, was toughness. A Roman historian actually wrote this. Centurions must be able, when overwhelmed and hard-pressed, to stand fast and die at their post. How would you like to apply tomorrow for a job? And they handed you the job description and said, must be able, when overwhelmed, to stand fast and die on the job. Get this one. More than just that, he had to ruthlessly maintain discipline among the ranks. It was his job to supervise and administer beatings of soldiers, even exercising capital punishment on his subordinates. How many would love to have that in your job description? I can exercise capital punishment on every subordinate at work. Probably shouldn't answer that year in church, okay? They were known for their brutal toughness. But this one has such a moment. I love the way Max Licato describes it. He says, he looked up into the face of this one near death. The king looked down at the crusty old centurion. And Jesus' hands were fastened. They could not reach out. His feet were nailed to timber. They couldn't work toward him. His head was heavy with pain. He could scarcely move. But his eyes, they were a fire. They were unquenchable. They were the eyes of God. Perhaps that is what made the centurion say what he said. He saw the eyes of God. He saw the same eyes that had been seen by a near-naked adulteress in Jerusalem, a friendless divorcee in Samaria, and a four-day dead Lazarus in a cemetery. The same eyes that didn't close upon seeing man's futility, didn't turn away at man's failure, and didn't wince upon witnessing man's death. It's all right, God's eyes said. I've seen the storm, and it's going to be all right. The centurion's convictions began to flow like a river. This was no carpenter. This was no peasant. This was no normal man. He stood and looked at the rocks that had fallen and the sky that had blackened. He turned and stared at the soldiers as they stared at Jesus with frozen faces. He turned and watched as the eyes of Jesus lifted and looked toward home. And he listened as the parched lips parted and the swollen tongue spoke for the last time. Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Had the centurion not said it, the soldiers would have. Had the centurion not said it, the rocks would have. As would have the angels, the stars, even the demons themselves. But he did say it. It fell to a nameless foreigner to state what they all knew. Surely, this man was the Son of God. Some of you in this room, when you've been wrestling with some unbelief, you have some doubts in your mind about faith and God and all that. I want to say something to you that I hope will liberate you. Don't you dare feel guilty about that. Faith is not the absence of doubt. My encouragement to you, this is my encouragement to you today, is instead of trying to focus on the quality of your faith or even the quantity of your faith, I want to encourage you to start focusing on the object of your faith. Try, just try to focus on Jesus and who he was and what was the really good news he brought to this earth. Here's what I think might happen. You might see him and even Christianity in a brand new light. Last thing and we'll close. The hope of the resurrection. 
gives us power to overcome disappointment. Here's the thing I love about people. People by nature are hopers. Every morning we get up and we open our eyes and it's another day. We hope what's going to happen that day or the next. We long, we wait for things that we desire. People in school, listen, can't wait till they graduate. People graduate often hope they'll get married. People who get married or are single sometimes hope that they will get married one day. People who get married sometimes can't wait to have kids. People who have kids can't wait to get kids out of the house. People who get kids out of the house, listen, they can't wait till they come back with grandkids. I don't know about all of you this morning, but I can tell you one thing for sure. Somebody sitting next to you, they got hopes. There's another woman in the story who had hope. Many people think she was kind of a loose woman. We're not really sure about that, to be honest with you. But something happened one day in her life. She got her hopes up. She hadn't hoped for anything in a long time. And she began to hope. And I'm going to tell you, some of you know this, that when you get your hopes up, it's a very vulnerable thing. Because here's what can happen. Sometimes your hopes don't pan out. Some of you have had some things in your life this morning that hasn't panned out right. And you're sitting here, you're doing the same thing Mary Magdalene was doing. What's next? Here's how I want to end and tell you today. I want to encourage you that if you feel disappointed, let down, brokenhearted, I want to bring you back to a place, the same place that Mary Magdalene found herself. And I want to invite you to come to the birthplace of hope and power. Because one day, two millennia ago, a group of people put all their hope in this rabbi. He was filled with an unshakable confidence in his father that was so confident, listen, it was so solid that these people were convinced they could put their lives and their future in his hands. And the strangest thing happened. A group of mostly forgotten people began to hope again. Lepers started to hope they could be cleansed. And prostitutes began to hope that they could be pure. And crooked tax collectors who were despised started to hope that they could be honest. The blind started to hope that they could see. And the lame started to hope that they could walk. And sinners started to hope that they could be right with God. And lonely people started to hope that they could be loved. And weak people started to hope that they could be strong. There was something about this man Jesus that made people hope who hadn't hoped in a long time. Jesus was so clear on his mission about the kingdom of God, who he was, and what God had called him to do. He would not be deterred. And man, let me tell you, it got him in a lot of trouble. He wouldn't back down. He wouldn't be stopped. And eventually, in desperation, those powers had him arrested and tried and condemned and trumped up charges. They mocked him. They beat him. They hung him on the cross. Now, this is very important. For all these people that I just named that have been following Jesus... People like Mary Magdalene, when he died, their hope died with him. But Mary Magdalene did one more thing. She made a decision that would change her life. She came to the tomb with the last, listen to me, the last ounce of hope in her heart. Maybe, possibly, hopefully, And as we celebrate the pivotal moment in the history of the human race, may we be reminded that this same power that raised Jesus from the dead is available now to ordinary people like you and me as we live in the kingdom.
Some of you are here today and you can relate to Peter. You're dealing with failure or maybe you have in the past and that prison of shame has been hanging around a long time. Here's a great message for you this morning. The power of the resurrection and give you overcome and help you overcome failure. Some of you knew exactly what I was talking about when I mentioned double-mindedness, indecisiveness. This guy, Pilate, he knew all about it. Because of the empty tomb, it also gives you the power to overcome double-mindedness, to make a decision that the one single thing that really matters in life is living in the kingdom of God under His rule, under His reign. And as some of you this morning, unfortunately, you're feeling overwhelmed by grief. Surely, if there was any mom, if there was any person who ever felt that, it was Mary. But what she found was not only a risen Savior, but a risen Son. She found new hope. She found out what all of us know, that sometimes you just live in the midst of that grief. And you just get power enough for that day. And some of you know exactly what this guy is all about. Unbelief, doubt, questions. And if that's you today, I just want you to know that the resurrection gives you power, listen, to ask those questions and to be honest about your unbelief and to be honest about the fact that you're not sure. You're somewhere in between. And today is a great day to realize that the resurrection gives you power to overcome that, to get on the other side and maybe stand at the foot of the cross and say what this guy said. Surely he is the Son of God. And then last but not least, some of you know all about Mary Magdalene. You know the disappointment that she had is being so close to Jesus and then being taken away from her. This morning, if life hasn't turned out like you thought it would, if some aspect of life isn't exactly panned out the way you wanted, I just want you to look to her and remember the morning she came to that tomb. And her heart was filled to overflowing, realizing she's going to get a second chance. Well, this morning, I want you to know that he is risen. (laughs) He's risen indeed. And my prayer today for you, Father, from one corner of this room to the other, I pray that every heart, every mind, every soul, would be filled with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Quicken our mortal bodies to be more than just bodies, to realize that there is coming a day when you will redeem all things. Death will finally, finally be no more. And hope will abound forever and ever. So this morning, I pray that your power would come to bear as these folks have taken a step of faith and received your power in their life. I pray that in Jesus' name.